Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Sunday morning. My family still had time to take advantage of this to say a few words about Hanukkah. Today's podcast about Hanukkah is being sponsored by my good friend, Gluck Plumbing, a, plum, a, a Gluck, very nice room from Lakewood. Appreciate it. And I'm going to maybe once or twice this week if I have a chance to say a few things about Hanukkah in different ways. I mentioned some of the, my thoughts about the history of Alanisim, but today's Arab Hanukkah, as it were, tonight's the first candle, and uh, that itself is interesting. You know, I'm a person that interests shift from one end to the other. Yesterday in Shul, I've been reading through the morale. And yesterday in Shul, we did the Zebin stuff with the classics. And to get right down to it, what do you do? Um, I was thinking about the famous question, you know, what they call Beis Yosef question, which is, if they had enough oil for one day, so why is it in a seven-day holiday? Why not an eight-day holiday? Now, really, 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 if you look in... Megillus Tinus, as I've said before, the real reason for the eight-day holiday is they want to remember the fact that it took them eight days to fashion new clichars. In other words, when the Maccabees captured the temple, even though it's very difficult to mix together the historical narratives that you find in the Book of Maccabees on the one hand and the Gemara on the other, but it could possibly be done. I've done in the past. For those who are interested, I have a two-hour talk that I gave in 1994 this whole business may be two and a half hours, and uh, it's on my website now. Uh, you might not recognize me. I was younger then. But there you give all the basic history of Hanukkah, put, putting all the, the pieces together as best as I can. But, um, so in other words, the Maccabees captured the temple, and then it took weeks, I repeat, weeks. Just take my word for it for the moment. It took a weeks to clean up the temple, fix it up. Um, the Greeks had despoiled everything. And um, in the course of this, they had to create everything new. I mean, they had to mow the grass. It says grass was growing all over the place because the building hadn't been let to go to hell. You know, the, nobody, um, you know, kept up the upkeep. No better could buy us for a long time. And so it was like a major repair situation. And one of the things they did was to make new clichars. That's what says McGill's Tynus. You can't have a basic mix without your clichars. And of course, a new altar, a new Mizbeach because they tore the old one down. And that took eight days. So they didn't want to forget the fact that it took eight days. That's what it made eight days. I mean, I'm just telling you, that's what the McGill's Times says, if you want to go by historicist sources. But you know as well as I do, 95% of great rabbis in the past never read McGill's Times, they didn't engage their interest for whatever reason, and they just went with what you have in the Talmud Babli, and then they only had that snatch of text they have the Talmud Bavli that was eight days, and they had, you know, Bodku Blamotsu Pachet Shem Chosen Shall Come Go. There was enough oil for one day, and then, hence the question, you know, since it, since that piece in the Gemara is only a fragment of the major, the whole part, which you can see in, in its entirety in Megillus Titus, which now you can go online, you know, just Google it, 
Um, but since they did that, so there's a whole, as we know, a whole literature based on this basic question. All right, now having said that, so there are all kinds of approaches. There's the famous Sefer Ner Lamea, where he gives 100 Terutzim. And there's a new one now, he made Shmuel Hanukkah, Chameshmeo Terutzim Lakush Beis, a guy had 500. Ellie Feldman gave it to the show. Um, so let's operate within that world. Okay? The world of, shall we say, the Lumbusha answers to the basic question. And there's two or three that I want to call to your attention because I thought they're cute and they came to my notice. One I've mentioned before, but since today's Arab Hanukkah, it's very fitting. And that is that uh, one opinion, this is Yaakov Emden, says that the eighth day is commemorate the famous uh, prophecy. You'll tell me what famous prophecy? Chagai. What famous prophecy? Chagai. Read the end of the book of Chagai. It's only two chapters, the whole book. And if you read over there, it gives a remarkable prophecy. And it's on Arab Hanukkah. It's on the 24th of Kislev. It says those words. Notice if you open up the Sefer Chagai, which of course, as you know, is in Treyosar, and you look at the last part of uh, of chapter 2, to be very specific, it's in um, Perik Beis Pasuk Yud, and then again in Perik Beis Pasuk Chaf. So it's Chagai 2, 10 and 20. And the first part is Be'esim Bar Chagai lived at the beginning of Baishani. And um, it's a little bit analogous, a little bit, to the Hanukkah business in the sense that you had problems with the base of Migdash. The Hanukkah times, of course, the Greeks had shut it down, as we know, to the Jews and used it for Greek purposes. In the time of Haggai, King Cyrus had allowed the Jews to return from Gauls Baba. Some did, some did not. And those that did started to build the base of Migdash, and then Cyrus changed his mind and stopped it. So it wasn't that the Persians used it for Persian purposes, because that's not what happened. But it was like interrupted. It was in, in limbo. Until the prophecy of Haggai, when God says, now's the right time to make a move, go rebuild it. I'm not going to go into that great detail. We've, ta- we've touched it in other places. Leave it leave it that alone. So in that context, the book of Haggai is about starting up the project again. And so the Jews will have a base in Megiddo. So this is what Hanukkah, on the one hand, and Haggai have in common. They both involve the base of Megiddo and the Jews getting back full control and use of the base of Megiddo. That's a tzadashava, you know? Right? And in the book of Haggai, it mentioned specifically it was Arab Hanukkah. Of course, Hanukkah happened later. Haggai is the beginning of the Second Temple, and Hanukkah is later, of course, in the Macedonian time. Um, it says, Be'esrim Barbola Shi, Bishnashtayim Ludayobish, and the 24th day of Kislev, technically of King Darius, a certain prophecy happened. Uh, I've mentioned it before. This is when they asked about it. and all that. Those of you in the Dafyomi will recall this from Safan. And then, um, and he says, start working the base of Mish. Otherwise, the economy won't turn around. Have you noticed? The economy has been going to the devil now. It'll turn around if you start building the base of Mish. That's the essence of it. Right? Hamala, from this day on, Miyam Esrimar Bolashiv from 24th of Kislev, you'll see how Zerba Makura, every the, the economy will go good. And then he says something which is really interesting in the context of the fact that we are now going through the story of Joseph in the Parsha Shavuot. Well, he's Varsham Shane is Al Chagab Esrimar Bolashiv. 
So notice what I'm describing happened today. I'm speaking to you Sunday morning, Arab Hanukkah, since the 24th of Kislev. In my show, they have the Belzer thing, so they, uh, they skip Tachlan because of this reason. What's the reason? It says, Emeralds, Rubabel, Pachas, Yehuda, Lemar. So the prophecy on Arab Hanukkah, again, on today in 24 Kislev is, tells Rubabel, who was the leader of the Jews, Ani, God says, I'm going to shake up the Gansa belt. I'll bring an earthquake to the whole belt. Right? I'll shake the whole, meaning, in order to help the Jews, in order to rebuild the base, and make sure whatever, I'm willing to make Iber Karenish in the whole world. Okay? I will turn upside down famous thrones. Notice, I'll destroy empires. I'll be mashmel, destroy chozik mamlachos agayim, the power of the uh, Gaisha nations. I'll turn the whole chariot and the riders upside down. And they'll fight each other, wipe each other out. No, as Russia will knock out the the Germany, Germany will knock out Russia, so to speak. China will knock out Russia, Russia will knock out China, and they'll do it for the sake of Klal Yisrael. Which is a pretty infuriating thing if you're not a Yid because all these world conflicts and things like this happen just for the uh, the Yisrael. But that is the story of Vayesh and Mikates and Vayigash. Because there was a tremendous famine, as we all know. I'm sure plenty of people died. Only today, Yosef should become the Mishnah of Melchim Mitzrayim and have this tremendous power. And then reunite with the brothers that way and save them and provide them with Goshen. It's quite infuriating. You tell me the nations in Canaan and elsewhere were starving and whole families were devastated. Who knows what happened? It was a tremendous famine. Only in order to help Yosef and Yaakov reunite and so on and so forth. So you're telling me the whole purpose of... It's as if someone would say the purpose of World War II was to prepare uh, the situation so that they could get State of Israel. The purpose of World War One was Kadesh to get the Balfour Declaration. Really? Tens of millions of people died and so much suffering just for this Jewish thing? That's the that's the prophecy of Chagai. Right? That's a Hinani Marish is a Shamayan Vyasaritz. And if you want to be technical, the Shamayan. I'm even willing to do Shidur Amarachos, you know. I'm willing to change the the the, the way that the heavenly forces are going to operate. But Fakti Kisim Amlochos. Ishmani Chozeg Agayim, and so on and so forth, in order that Ekochachos Rubavel Avdi Besamticha Kachosim Kibachor Bacharti. So that Rubavel, meaning the Klai Yisrael, should come out on top. And indeed, I'm holding in front of me the uh, Mikris Gedolos on the Chagai. You know, I like that new set with the Nakudas. And I'm just single here. The Radak says. Uh, who are these kingdoms that Chagai is talking about? Either Mechamas Ha'ebimitar Yavish, maybe some Persian uh, wars, because the Persian Empire was in an expansion mode at that time. O Nemra Nevuzu al Bittel Malchus Paras, for his Chadesh Malchus Yavan. Or maybe he's forecasting the destruction of the Persian Empire and the rise of Greece. In other words, Alexander the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire, the emergence of the Hellenistic era. That's what he means. Maybe he's talking about the rise of Greece. In which case, it's sort of intimately connected with the Hanukkah story. At least it could be argued that way. 
Now, he buys into the Seder Olam calculation. I won't go into that. And also, this Rabbi Eliezer Mibojanzi, who apparently is uh, quoted a lot, also here under Rashi, he says, Hafakti kis mamlochas kigomi paras liyavan, miyavan l'rom. So, there's a, a prediction of divine intervention in international affairs to bring about worldwide conflicts today that Claudius Roth should, should uh, uh, prevail. So, Yaakov Enden says, and I'm reading from the Mor Ukitsiya, that's his book on the tour, right? He wrote a lot of different sparks. If you look, you know, at the beginning of Hilchus Hanukkah, you know what I mean? So it says that, um, and I think he says this, I did this because, <laughs> what is it over here? This is cute. You know, Yaakov Emden always has issues. You know what I'm saying? He's always an attitude, not issues, attitude. That's the style of Yaakov Emden. And he says, this is the beginning, you know, the Tafre Shine is where it starts in the tour in Shulchan Ar. I'm sure you know that. Tafre Shine. And so it says, at the t- I'm reading it what, what Rabbi Yaakov Enden says at the intro to his comments on on the tour. I'm running a Dvar Torah while everybody else is fressing. <laughs> okay? Now we got fressing. Menorah, Shav, Kula. The whole thing is garnished, what they do. Limshach, Beyayin, this Besarim. In other words, it's Menorah, Shav, Kula. It's it's a uh, their menorah is, is is worth nothing because they don't imbibe the spirit of Hanukkah. They fress. They play chess and they play a uh, poker and cart. Shakaki damen karten beiravi. The men play chess. The women play cards. Something like that. Mishka All this stuff is by them. Quoting some Yushalmi. Also, lechem kazav nesal b'hoven. They make all kind of false lechem. In other words, they write. What he's trying to say is like this: they write X-rated poems. Now, not by your standard or my standard, <laughs> right? By us, it's G. But by the standards of the 18th century, it's X-rated. But yam makudash losam of Israel at a time when it should be a time of kedusha for Klal Yisrael. Liskor chaste Hashem alena v'sinu ba'asos noros chaste v'zroh amo yena akavin. Right, so everybody else is uh, parties, card games, booze, the uh, fressing, you know, uh, bossar, and so on and so forth. So I'm gonna, uh, uh, I'm gonna be different. I'm gonna uh, write a dvar Torah. All right, and he's called Menorah Zog. And in the beginning, he says, "Betam shem Chanukah nearly dober chodesh shenikar kim al shem chinuchah hechol." That the first day of Chanukah, when they had enough oil. Was actually chinuch ha'hechol. So b'zman zebi mechagei hanavi, and they wanted to commemorate the fact that Hanukkah or a day apart. It was the twenty fourth of Kislev. They had just finished uh, celebrating the anniversary where Chagai had the prophecy. That's when the temple was founded. And the way Yaakov understands it. After they got that dream, the next day they started offering carbonus on the altar. So notice they built an altar, but the king of Persia told them to stop. And now under the inspiration of Chagai's Nevoah, they started again, which would therefore mean that, let's say for example, it's like this year. 
So let's say I'm Chagai. So there's a base of Megish out there, partially built. Among them is, is a Mizbeach. But the Persian government say you're not allowed to use it. So for years it's been there in limbo, right? Limbo, like one of these government projects. Now today, Sunday morning, I got a Nevoah which says, start, you start, you start it up. Don't worry about the Persians, just start it up. And tomorrow they start it up. So they next day they did it, they want to hide. They started using base base based on the Nevoah that they got. Yeah, so no, this tomorrow's Monday. They started up the base base on Monday, with, you know, with carbon tumble and all the rest of it, based on the Nevoah you had the day before and Sunday. That's how he wants to say it. Okay? Okay? Even though the rest of the base image wasn't built, but the menorah alone was enough because it says, And that night, no, it's Sunday night, tonight, let's say, that's when they started the menorah. And therefore they call it Hanukkah. If that's the case, that could be a reason why you have parties on Hanukkah because it actually commemorates something other than what I just told, other one you think has to do not with the with the building of the Mishkan that you'll find in the tour from Avram or Prague or somebody like that and the Ramah but um, they started up the same thing at the time the, the, the second temple was inaugurated that day uh, if you follow the politics in there in the book of Haggai and Zechariah especially the first day of Ezra Baishani began to operate on the day you and I call Hanukkah. So they want to make an eighth day for, to commemorate that. That's the theory. I'm only mentioning it because today you're going to listen to this podcast. If you do, today itself is an interesting day in Jewish history. 24 Kislev. Right? That's one of uh, Mahal. Of many. It's one of 500. Now, I, I got to tell you something. I, um, because I want to share this with you. I was in Shul yesterday. And I was reading to Zevin with the people. And Zevin is great, the modern Balacham, because he goes through all the classic Yeshiva stuff. One, two, three. Uh, you know, this question, this question, Tumut uh, or you know, Mashkin Basement, Bechai and all that stuff. Uh, and very nicely, and modern Balacha. And among there, but the original place you find most of this is in the Beis Yosef and the Bach, the beginning of Tavre Shayim. I'm sure many of you know that. At the beginning of Hanukkah, especially in the Bach, and it's very famous stuff. And tell you the truth, he's quoting from the Re'em, uh, who was in the 15th century in Constantinople and so forth. So one of the questions was, one of the questions is, as I'm going to read you from the Bach, um, um, the Kohanim were tummies. How could they light the, the candles? The Teretzaim, Haraim, said, Look at my day, Pshut de Kliates. So they used Pshut de Kliates, you know, a wooden kalem, which didn't have a, a, a base kibble receptacle. So anything that's flat, let's say, or something like that, wood that you could use. So what does that mean? So I, I said, like this. They use, like, a, for example, that was in show, um, like a pool sticks to light the manure, you know? Uh, I'm a Kohen, I'm Tomei, because they just finished, according to the regular way of learning this, for the Bach and those type of people, Chanukah occurred, not like the Book of Macbeth, you know, 
Hanukkah. I don't know where they came up Hanukkah, but that's what they did. So the way they understand that is that it was like the Alamo. The Jews were fighting to break in, but it's okay. The Jews were the Mexicans and the Greeks were the Americans. And the Greeks were holding the temple against the Jews and Judah Maccabee courageously leads an army in and fights his way and kill all those son of guns. And Chanukah, hey, and then they build a new uh, Mizbech right on the spot, and they light everything up, and they start. I mean, I, it, of course, it's radically oversimplified, but that's the usual way of understanding Chanukah, hey. However, and in that case, everybody was just killing. And if you stab a guy with a sword, you're, you're tummy. Cherv Kachol. And different, if all the Kohanim are tummy, how could they do the menorah? That's the question, the way the Bach is understanding it. And the answer is, you do it through Pshut to create. So let's say, for example, listen closely. Let's say I'm a coin, and now the, the, the menorah is full of the first oil, of what they found, the jar of the coin got all, um, and they poured it in. But how can I light it? If I touch it, I'll be metamiyed. The answer is, Pshut to create. You know, so I imagine it's, like I said, if we take a long stick, which which is like, a, let's say, for example, a pool stick. I tell you the truth, I don't play pool. A, a, a stick, which doesn't have a base cable on it, you know, there's no receptacle. Um, and you light it on the end, like a one big match, and then you, you touch that to the to the wicks. And that's how you light it. But of course, that begs the question, as they, they immediately jumped on me. So how'd they get the oil into the lamp in the first place? You know, that's a good question. Uh, because they themselves were telling me, so how could they open the bottle and pour it out and, and pour it into the into the thing? Now, even the Bach himself ends up saying, well, maybe there were Kohanim who weren't telling me and so on and so forth. Uh, you can look that up yourself. But raise the question, I'm just telling you a funny story. So raise the question, if you go with the shop, shoot the Kleades, like the Bach says, so how'd they do that? How do you open the bottle, the 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 pach, the 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 jar that had the coin guttles oil in it that was pure? And I'm talking about physically, and pour that into the seven things of the of the candelabra, the menorah. However, they made it. They say they made a menorah out of wood and so on and so forth. However, you made it. I can't pick it up. I'm I'm being betamed just by picking it up. And if, so the answer is to cleates. They don't use those words. That's what it comes out to. So then you're talking about chopsticks over here. You're talking about, you hear what I'm saying? Think of the physical zah. Then I, uh, <laughs> I'm a coin, but I'm Tommy, and so are the others. And I got to open this jar and pour the oil out and then pour that into the, into the menorah. I'm Tommy. How you going to do that? Well, the human mind is inventive. I guess if you take some flat boards or some zach like that, you hold it against the side so you don't touch it, and the pshut it creates is okay because it can't be tummy, and you somehow or other, like one gigantic chopstick type board, or maybe some some variation thereof, and you pick up and you pour it in, but just your your hands are touching the pshut creates and not the jar itself. I'm not getting into the question of Thomas Hesse. Just leave that alone. I'm simply pointing out 
That's a Gansapashka. You know, if you're from my generation, you don't know how to use it. <laughs> what do you call it? The, uh, the chopsticks, you know. Uh, I'm from the generation you go to the Chinese restaurant, you use the, the, the fork. You know, the old Shemokah Bernstein from yesteryear. Now, how'd they do it? You understand? Physically, how'd they do it? Why don't they spill it and make a mess all over the place? I said that for a joke. And then, I opened this book called 500 Answers to the, um, what do you call it? To the Basiosis question. I repeat, 500 Answers. And I seem to remember in the past, going through 500, that someone, I mean, it has to be that someone quoted this Yaakov M that I said before, because he's a famous person. The Morixi is a classic work on the Torah. Maybe Akamend is one of the famous Gedolim. And some it must be here somewhere. But I'm looking through the table of contents. This answer, this answer, you know, it's all over the place. Some are peep shot, some are wild and off the wall. Super off the wall. On Okay, let it be. And my attention, while I'm looking through there, looking through this answer, this answer, I came to page seventy six. And it says, what was the what was the eighth day for? What miracle was that? Mirovis Livis. This Lahavis. The coin goddess didn't spill it. I said, well, that's what I was talking about. If they had to manipulate it with the shooting and stuff like that, I mean you had to be highly dexterous, you know what I mean? Like you, you had to be real let me put it this way. I'm a coin, but I couldn't have done it, <laughs> you know. I would spill all over the place. Mess it up. You understand? And I'm looking at here. And give it a Hasidic spin. A Hasidic spin. Which is cute. And I'll read it to you. From some saver called Amunas Moshe. I have no idea who that is. And it says, Venir Lataris Eskushas Beis Yosef Al Pidivri Kedushas Admor Azokami Vorki Rabbi Yitzhak Vorki Famous Hasidic Rebbe from the early 19th century. Who I looked at was a pharmacist, by the way. Anyway, I had he explained to me, so the answer, what about the eighth day? I'll divri Rashi, I'll cause it by asking Aaron. And he refers to the Pusik, which says that Aaron did what God told him about the oil. Rashi, Very well known Rashi, right? To tell you the praise that Aaron did not deviate. Shaloshino. So, the Hasidic Rebbe, Isaac Worki, says, Mikoshi what's, what's the godless of saying that Aaron did not change or deviate from what God commanded him to do in terms of carrying out the ceremony? Aaron was a from guy. What's the surprise? Shem told him to do it this way. He did it this way. Elamai, Hapirashu, Shlonikaboshum, Shinoi so it doesn't mean that when Aaron carried out the lighting of the lights in the Mishkan, that he didn't deviate from the instructions that God gave him. That's not what it means. It means he carried it out even though inside he was like super freaking out from his lahavas. The Baruch gave him a commandment. It's such a Kadusha, and especially if you're Hasidish or Kabbalah, you can imagine all the uh, Kavanas Involved with carrying out a vote in the base of Migdash, especially like the, the lights, Semen, uh, he must have been freaking. So, 
See, you know, it's like a chassidish blowing the shofar. You have to have this come on and this come on and this come on and that thing. You're raging inside from tremendous emotion. You're like a volcano. How do you suppress that and not have your hands shake? The whole body titter, which is not a good idea when you're pouring oil into the lamp. That's not the time to have a tittering and shaking. You got to keep your hands steady. In this famous Hasidic Rebbe, Rabbi Zagaborka said, uh, Suppose the famous Levi Yitzhak Bardichever, the Kedushas Levi, who used to shake and daven like crazy, you know, you know the stories. Suppose Hashem would have told him, I want you to light the menorah. <laughs> He'd be shaking and tittering so much that he would have broken the menorah and poured out all the world. Meaning, he couldn't control his bodily shaking from the rove his pilas, from the rove his lahavas that he had to carry it out in a mitzvah of the Rabbani Shalom. Now, Aaron lo shino, so nikabashim shinoi. Aaron, however, Rabbi Zegborki says, was able to control himself inside. Because remember, to a chassid, to a chassid, to a chassidic rebbe, Aaron was a chassid, right? Correct? Among the first chassidic rebbe's. And that's how they see it. So the point's like this. That even though he was raging with emotion, and kavonis and yechudim, but externally he was in total control of his body, and he didn't spill a thing. Therefore, this author suggests, when a time came in Hanukkah, and they got a chance once again, after this hiatus under the Greeks, to light the menorah with all the kadush over there, so notice, imagine if you're Judah Maccabee, assuming that he's the one that did it. And like I say, I'm going with the Lamdisha version of the history. So Chanukah, they're fighting their way in the temple. On the 25th, they kill the Greeks. Now they're ready to start the menorah up again. And uh, they're shaking with emotion. Uh, which which undoubtedly was true, by the way. I mean, notice, I believe when the Maccabees captured the temple, they must have been shaking with emotion. And uh, one of the one of the ceremonies, the first ceremonies to light the menorah, and, you know, they found the jar of oil that itself was amazing. And they found the jar of oil, and their, uh, you know, their hands are tittering. No, they weren't. Uh, they didn't break the menorah, and they didn't mess it up. And they didn't do what I would have done, which is make a ganza mess and spill this all over the place. But they were done exactly like Aaron. In other words, they were able to suppress their shaking and uh, focus mind over matter and carry out the ceremony of the pouring of the oil and the lighting of the candles uh, without spilling anything. So I was, so me, myself, and I, I'm adding this twist. If you go that they had to use pseudocleates even for the oil itself to pour it in, which is what the box suggests, uh, then it's really a miracle because they were not, uh, what's the right word, you know, gymnasts and things like this that can control everything without spilling it. Uh, you know, they were warriors, they were common, but they pulled it off without spilling anything. Um, even though it required a lot of manipulation, the jar didn't fall on the ground and spill all over the place. Can you imagine... Just like a, a comedian 
in Israel would do this. You know, if you want to make a joke, uh, the Maccabees finally come to find the jar of oil. They give it to Chaimel, the coin on the left. He goes and trips, and the jar breaks, and the oil spills over the ground. Ice Hanukkah, you know what I mean? But that did not happen. And therefore, they consider that a bigger part of the I think that's a very cute uh, kind of approach, and it brings out certain aspects over here, certain aspects of the holiday. Now, um, I'll say one more point. As I said, I was reading the morale through over Shabbos. You know, the Nair Mitzvah. He is very interested, as you know, in the meta-history and the significance of Yavon as a meta-historical force. I think, I mean, I suspect, speaking historically, the morale lived in the 16th century. That's the time the Renaissance hit Central Europe very big. The Renaissance started in Italy in mainly 1400s, let's say, late 1300s, 1400s, and then spread elsewhere. Um, Iker Zach of the Renaissance was the revival of the interest in Greek and Latin, the Greek culture, the Latin culture, other than the, no, it was not only the Christian culture. And the morale lived in Prague for a long time, so he wrote the book, and Prague was a major center of the uh, Renaissance. People don't know that. If you've been to Prague, you can see a lot of Renaissance architecture over there, by the way. And if you're a Renaissance person, then all the Greek stuff is gavaled to get a major um, uh, formative factor in, in Western culture, which it is. Therefore, the, the morale obviously interprets this in a broad sense to see, you know, the forces of Yavan in culture and history against those of the Jewish people. And that's what that was. And I'm, not, not, I'm, I'm, I'm more than halfway through, but not completely through. I'm just sharing you with one idea. And I'm reading, and I see he says... You know, why does it say, because everything according to morale is dafka, you know, every gadata you have to um, examine minutely because every single word in the gadata has significance. So why did it have to be the pach of the coin gadol that they found? Why couldn't it be a regular pach? That's a famous question. Others have written on it. You know, why is it pach shal coin gadol, munach bechos shal coin gadol? What's the point of that? They won't tell you that just because it's a fact, not according to morale. And, um, he emphasized the fact that the coin is represent coin gadol can go in the kodesh kedusha, so that means the coin gadol has extra kedusha. So you need this extra kedusha to combat yavan, that kind of idea. And so not even a regular coin, coin gadol, that kind of kedusha is super. But as I'm reading through it, I, you kind of get the impression I didn't see he said it explicitly, and if he didn't say explicitly, then I'm I'm speculating on this. Maybe they found it in the Kodesh HaKodoshim. In other words, we don't know. How do we know when the Greeks sacked the temple, did they go into the Kodesh HaKodoshim, which was an empty room in the Baishani? Maybe the Greeks were afraid to go in there. They heard when you go in, you die. There was a famous example of Alexander the Great, Digmar talks about, when he was given a tour of the temple grounds by Gvi and Membesiso, he said, I want to go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And Gvi Bemsiso, there's a whole discussion between them. By the time it's over, Alexander the Great does not go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. You know, many of you know that story, right? Does not go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. It could be, and I'm suggesting this as a sort of a dry Torah, sort of, that when they captured the temple, the Greeks, they took over the temple, even they didn't go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim because they're afraid. Um, 
you have a precedent for this in the Bayes Rishon with Yoash, the baby kid that escaped the massacre by the wicked Queen of Salia. And the high priest hid him, the baby, in the Kodesh Kodashim for seven years because they wouldn't go in there either. They didn't believe somebody could live there and not die. And so maybe what happened was the Maccabees captured a temple. The whole place is full of junk, idols and who knows what. All the oil is tummy. But there was nothing, but let's put it this way. But the Greeks didn't go into that empty room called the Kodesh Gadasha. Because uh, when, si- when Titus did, the war makes an old story about it. So they didn't go into the Kodesh Gadasha. And it could be that when the Greeks were coming in and killing everybody and taking over, the Kohen Gadol at that time, or one of the Kohanim, just tossed a bottle into the Holy of Holies itself. Figuring, correctly so, that the Greeks wouldn't go in there and chase after it. But Kachava, and now come the Maccabees, and they're cleaning up the whole place, and they have to go in the Holy of Holies to make sure that there's no idols there. And they find there isn't any idol there. But they do find a jar of oil in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Um, and they can tell it wasn't touched. Like Rashi says it was buried in the ground. You know, Thomas has said they could tell it wasn't touched. Maybe you could tell because it was located in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. In other words, the whole spin would be that the jar was found in the Kodesh HaKadoshim, which the Maral would be of great significance. Um, I'm not necessarily connecting that with the eight days, although if you paid me, I could do that. But I just throw it out with you because I shared with you a number of ideas they can talk about in the next couple of days of Hanukkah um, more in the traditional fashion rather than the strictly historicist one. And uh, I hope to do another one later this week, if I have some time, from a different angle, perhaps. And uh, that's enough for now. I went too long as it is. So with that, I wish everybody a fair Hanukkah. Once again, I want to thank the Clark Plumbing for sponsoring over here. And uh, have a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.